this presidential election year, we are living in one of the most divided times in American history. We all know that. If you are informed at all about, uh, about politics in our country, if you have opinions, if you have family members who maybe see things differently than you do, you probably feel that. You feel it emotionally. There's a certain level of anxiety that comes from the deep division in our society. And at the same time, there are all these important issues that we all face that affect our lives that are going to be a part of the, the campaign, uh, the campaigns this year. And it's difficult for us at times to even understand the issues or to know where the candidates stand because we live in such an emotionally divided climate that a lot of times the facts aren't really presented. The, the way that a policy actually affects our lives isn't really presented. It ends up being name-calling and accusations of this or that that may have nothing to do with the actual policies that you know, these candidates want to uh, enact if they are elected. And so we, we, we live in a time where we just can't keep going the way we've been going. It just can't stay this way. It's unsustainable. We have to come to some kind of working solution where enough Americans can agree on enough things so we can move forward for the benefit of all of us. Our, I mentioned last week our kids' ministry has doubled here since last April. Our kids' ministry is well over a third of the church now. And you see these little kids check into well kids. And, and I, of course, I'm a dad. And, but whether you are or not, I mean, you think about the world they're going to grow up in. What, what is their life going to be like over the next 10 or 15 years? And I, I feel like I owe, I owe these kids something. Do you feel that? Do you think about that from time to time? Like, I owe these kids a future. And if I can do something about that, then I want to. I want to give them something better than, than, what, than what they have right now. And so that's the spirit behind this series. We are not telling people how to vote. You vote your conscience. You do that. What we want to do is we want to look at two sides of all of these issues every week. We want to fairly represent both sides to where no matter which side you fall on, you feel like that, that guy up there who, who won't stop talking, it, he, he understands where I'm coming from. And, and I feel fairly represented at least. And, and then we'll look at our faith and what our faith might say about an issue. And then and we'll talk about the will of the American people at the end. So let's, let's dive into health care. Now, there's so much that we could say about health care I'm generally focusing on the cost of health care and how we pay for it because that's the immediate political issue. But there's so much more we could say about that. In America, I was just talking to somebody who's a health care provider before the service, and he said, you know, in America, we really don't promote health. We treat sickness. And, and he said, you know, there's a lot of people who just feel like, oh, I can take a pill, but that's not health. And so I've heard it said Americans eat like we have free health care. Like that's part of American culture. And we don't really talk about preventative health. We have vegans here in the congregation. We have people who are very health conscious. We have people who believe in practicing preventative health care. And so we could, in our food supply and exercise, and we could talk about so many things that, that affect Americans' health care. Today, I'm focusing on the cost of health care and how it's paid for. Because again, that's what the election is focusing on. So the chart here that I have, we're going to start with, shows health care as a percentage of GDP, gross domestic product from 1970 to 2016. 
And so this is the cost of health care based on how much this country produces um, every year. You see the gold line is the United States, and you see the rest of the lines pretty much huddled together. And so we have Austria, Canada, Germany, Switzerland, United Kingdom. Um, this is the cost of their health care per capita as it's changed since 1970. And then that gold line is the cost of our health care. You see the difference, don't you? And we all know this. We all feel it in our pocketbooks. So um, American health care is more expensive than health care compared to the rest of the world. And we don't have the best outcomes to go along with that expense. So we're spending more than the rest of the world on health care, but we're not getting the same outcomes that they're getting. And yes, of course, that's tied into preventative health care and so on. But that's just the, the financial reality that we're living in. So today we're, we're looking at how do, we, how do we address this? And we're going to try to present uh, two sides fairly. And the two sides we're looking at are essentially, number one, people who believe that uh, the U.S. should have only a private health care insurance system. And then secondly, people who believe there should be only a public option or that there should be a mix of public and private options for health care. So first, a little history. A few years ago, there was a major change in the way that Americans uh, have their health care paid for uh, in the United States when the Affordable Care Act was passed uh, in 2010. Of course, it's also known as Obamacare. Um, and the Affordable Care Act did a couple of things that were a major change in the way health care was covered for Americans. First, it made it illegal for health insurance companies to turn down customers based on pre-existing conditions. So before the ACA, uh, if you had a, a disease and, and, and the insurance company assessed their risk with you, they could turn you down and say, you're just going to cost too much. And the ACA made that illegal. And in uh, addition, there were cost controls where the insurance companies can only make so much in profit. Uh, before that, there were people who just simply went bankrupt trying to pay for their health care. They didn't have coverage or they had junk insurance where they had a catastrophic policy, but it didn't really help them. And so there were people who lost their homes. And of course, there were people who died because they couldn't afford uh, quality health care. Another thing that the Affordable Care Act did was it mandated insurance. It was called the individual mandate, and the law stated that you have to be insured or you have to pay a fine. And the idea there is the more people who pay into a risk pool for insurance, the more the premiums come down. And so if we get everybody in, it gives us the lowest cost that we can achieve, at least through, through uh, these private insurance companies. And then in 2017, there was a tax bill that struck that down. So there is no individual mandate, and then the number of insured people have, has gone up now uh, for the first time in four years um, because you don't, it's not mandated that you get insurance. And right now, the current number of uninsured Americans is about 8.5%. You, you, you see 8.5%, it seems like a small number. It's close to 10%. So when you're talking about oh, close to 1 out of 10 Americans is uninsured, oh, well, that's, I mean, that's an issue. And so... The goal was to get that number down, but now it's rising again for the first time in four years. And now in this presidential election year, the possibility of Medicare for all, or some Medicare for all who want it is another slogan, has been uh, adopted as a part of several uh, platforms or campaign uh, uh, platforms. So that's, that's going to become the issue this year. 
Is health insurance just going to be private in the United States, or is it going to become entirely public, like a universal health care system, single payer, or is there going to be a mix of public and private? So um, both sides know that the cost of health care is too high, and our outcomes are not as good as we want them to be. And so first we're going to look at people who believe that the, the solution is to continue to have private health insurance in the United States. And of course, this, these are not exhaustive lists, and, and I'm not doing justice to either side. We're just going to quickly go through and, and just try to get a basic understanding. So first of all, people who believe that health care should be private in the United States uh, might say that free market competition will lower costs. And so this is a, a feature of, of capitalism. So if I want to go shopping for a TV, I can go to Walmart or Best Buy or Target or wherever else, Amazon, and I can find the best price. And that encourages companies to price their products at the most affordable price possible to try to compete and, and beat out the competition on price. And so they believe that uh, if we have free market um, competition between insurance companies, they'll compete with each other. And, and there must be some way of increasing competition that would lower that price. Secondly, they would say that private insurance uh, can offer more choices of doctors than public insurance. So if I'm able to compete, if I'm able to kind of open the market, and uh, then I can perhaps have more choice. Now, this, can, this could apply to either one, depending on how you structure the system, but you often hear folks who support this. You say, private insurance will help us to have more choice in our doctor. I want to go to the doctor I want. Third, they would say that free market insurance helps companies to make a profit and compete with each other, and that helps to fund research. So if companies are, are encouraged to compete with each other, then they also want to innovate. They want to get an edge over the other uh, companies and, and fund um, uh, new kinds of medicine and, and new kinds of healthcare, and that competition in the free market will encourage that innovation. And, and we are the leaders, uh, the innovative leaders in medicine in the world, and they say it's because we have private health care and we want to keep on doing that. Uh, number four, uh, they believe that competition can disrupt the status quo and provide new ideas for how we cover health care. So, for example, maybe you've heard about uh, an idea called Haven. It's a com or a, um, a, uh, uh, basically an agreement between uh, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Uh, Morgan Chase, um, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, and uh, Warren Buffett, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, to offer um, private insurance coverage to their employees and their companies that is structured differently than most insurance plans. Arizona is actually a test market. We have somebody in our church who now has coverage using this concept of Haven. They're not an insurance company yet, but Haven is it's a way that they're structuring insurance in their companies. And so what it looks like is they don't have a deductible. Which everybody says, woohoo, you know, they don't have a deductible. And so what they're doing is they have copays. And you know what the copay is for every kind of care that you could get. You know going in, this is what you're going to pay. And so before, maybe you have a deductible of three grand, and you just, you're just going to pay for it up to that point. Instead, well, this procedure is 175 bucks. This is 50. This is 250. Whatever. And you just know that going in. So it it, it uh, it's meant to take away the sticker shock, and help the consumer to know what the what the cost is. And their hope is that that would promote competition if more people adopt this. So you have uh, concepts like Haven. Another one is a company called EQRX. 
And this is a drug company that's just getting started, and their plan is to produce 10 kinds of medication, popular kinds of medication, at a fraction of the price, which sounds great. That's their goal, but that's it's their entrepreneurs. They want to innovate. And so folks who hold this view would say, well, private insurance helps to promote new innovative ideas that can drive competition and hopefully bring the price down. And then finally, folks who support a free uh, market and private insurance generally don't like government oversight or higher taxes that would come from uh, a public option. So these are folks who just have the philosophy, as Reagan said, uh, that government is the problem. The less government, the better. And so they're always looking for solutions that, um, that uh, minimize government regulation and government involvement and uh, put, uh, you know, put it into the hands of the free market. That's not an exhaustive list. I hope you feel, though, that I've been fair if you have this view and at least cited some of the reasons that you may have the view that you have. So to the other side, people who believe that there should be a public option only just single-payer government health care, or that there should be a mixture of public and private um, coverage for Americans, they would cite uh, these reasons. So, number one, they would say the U.S. is the only country in the developed world without a government-run public insurance option, and we still have the highest percentage of uninsured citizens. Switzerland does have private insurance, but it's, it's super-regulated. Switzerland is like the Affordable Care Act on steroids. Actually, Obamacare was modeled after Switzerland's program, but it didn't go as far as Switzerland does. But they would say that we're the only country in the developed world without uh, either it's a government-run program or uh, regulation over private insurance the way that Switzerland does. So here's a map of the countries of the world with universal or near-universal coverage. The countries in green have universal health care where nearly everyone is covered. The countries in blue have health care that is free at the point of service, but not everyone is covered. And the countries in red do not have universal health care. So you see the United States, Greenland, and the countries of Central Africa and Central Asia are just about the only nations in the world that don't offer universal health care. The, U- the U.S. is the only developed country that does not offer universal health care. In contrast, um, Germany's system of universal health care is a system of sickness funds. There are a large number of these sickness funds. They're nonprofits that people pay into. They began in 1883 under Otto von Bismarck. Uh, the UK started uh, its national health service, the NHS, in 1948. So, I mean, Germany was addressing this problem in the 1880s. And uh, so, first they would point out you know, the U.S. is an outlier. And they would say that's why our gold line is an, is an outlier. So, uh, Secondly, they would say public insurance models like Switzerland and Germany or single-payer systems like the U.K. and Canada are, have far more effective outcomes at a lower cost. So the next chart, and these are kind of numbers back. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm filtering the charts in here. In 2018, U.S. healthcare spending per person was $10,586 per capita. The next closest country was Germany with 5,986. Now, the UK is 4,070. So you see the United States, Germany, Sweden, Canada, France, all the way down. India, $209 per capita. But the, look at the gap between the United States, 10,005 versus 5,009 with the, with the next country that spends the most on health care per person. 
And again, Germany has a mix of public and private health insurance providers with those sickness funds. And you can still get pr uh, private health insurance in all these countries too, by the way. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, in Switzerland, again, private insurance is mandated. And um, interestingly enough, our public health care costs, Medicare in the United States costs less than the public options in some other countries. So let's look at this next one here. This is a comparison of, uh, of the countries of the world. This is back in 2014. The blue is the uh, public insurance coverage by country. The red is the private insurance offered in each of these countries. The United States is the country on the far left. So you see the blue is our public insurance option, Medicare and Medicaid and the VA. It's actually less than some of the public insurance options of, of the other countries. Where does our cost come from? The red. Are you with me? There was no answer when I just asked that question. Are you with me? The red is the, the, the percentage that private insurance pays in each country. So our public and private coverage is split about 50-50. Now Medicare and Medicaid and the VA pay a little more than half of our national health care costs. But you see that that huge expense in the United States comes from our private insurance sector compared to the rest of the countries. Um, thirdly, uh, they would say that higher taxes to provide a public option or, or single payer would still be lower than our current taxes plus health insurance premiums. So every politician is scared to death of raising taxes. We're a country founded on protesting taxes. We threw a bunch of tea into the Boston Harbor. In, in America, and one of the things I think as you get older and, and you become more politically informed, there are all kinds of issues on the periphery that we argue about as Americans. And, and sometimes you, you, you take a look, you just kind of drill down, and it just appears as if Basically, all of the, not all, a lot of the disagreements that we have and the laws that get passed and the political fights are really about taxes. Who pays what and how much do they pay? And we're a country that's founded on paying low taxes. So no, no politician wants to raise taxes. And people who, uh, who advocate for a public uh, program or a mix of public and private, they're just saying, based on other countries in the developed world, our taxes would go up to pay for a public option, but that tax that we pay would still be less than the taxes we currently pay, plus your private health insurance. Your deductible, what's coming out of your check every month at work. And so saying, yes, taxes would go up, but it would still be less than our taxes plus our private health uh, cost now. Uh, fourth, they would say expanding Medicare to all ages would give the government more bargaining power than private insurance companies to negotiate lower prices. Now, this is one where it begins to get complex and it starts to really hit people uh, in, the, in, the, in the healthcare industry. We have doctors and nurses in this congregation, uh, medical service providers in this congregation, and this is complex. There, there are no easy answers here. What these other countries are doing is that uh, they, they uh, have a program where the government is negotiating prices with health care providers. 
Whereas in the United States, and any healthcare provider could tell you this as well, there is a negotiating uh, process that takes place with various insurance companies. So depending on your insurance company, you can pay wildly different prices for the same procedure or the same medicine. And in Germany, for example, uh, the, the sickness funds come in with government regulation and they say to medical providers, here's what it costs. This is what a knee replacement costs. This is what an MRI costs. This is what that particular drug costs. And that's what it costs. And now the plus for healthcare providers is they spend less on administration. So they don't need to employ as many people, you know, haggling with, uh, with uh, insurance companies about who's going to pay what in negotiating rates. But at the same time, for example, you know, doctors in Germany make about a third less than doctors in the United States. And that gets difficult because we want everybody to do well in America. And we don't want to take money out of people's pockets, you know. And we love doctors. We love health care. I, when my children get sick, I want to be able to take them to somebody who can help them. And I love medical science, and I, I love doctors and nurses. And, and um, I've talked about uh, this little boy, Gabriel, who passed away at the age of six. And uh, Hannah and I are friends with his parents. And I journeyed with them in, in Children's Hospital, and, and his doctors and nurses came to his funeral. And these, I mean... When I walked into that children's hospital, this was in Columbus, Ohio, I just felt like I am, in, I am walking on holy ground. I am in a sacred space right now. If God is not here, God is nowhere. This, is, this, is, this has to be one of the most special places on the planet because of the work that these healthcare providers do. Healing, doing God's work, healing people. And so it gets complex, it gets difficult, but people who support this, uh, this option would say that Medicare would be able to negotiate prices, and that would bring prices down. And then lastly, uh, they would point out that all developed countries, like we saw in that chart, have a mix of public and private insurance. So the U.S. is never going to abandon private insurance altogether. There's no reason to think that. None of these other countries have. You saw the chart with the blue and the red. All of those companies that offer public options or that have universal health care also have some private insurance. The healthcare provider I was talking to before the service pointed out correctly that there is still a two-tiered system of healthcare in, in these largely European countries. And, and um, he's right about that, that there is still a measure of injustice because if you have enough money, you can still afford better and faster healthcare than, than the rest of the population. So it's not like these countries are a utopia. It's just that there is a mix of public and private insurance and that the U.S. would have that as well, uh, no matter what happens. So that's a quick rundown. And I've been as mild-mannered and milquetoast and probably boring as possible in this series, trying to be factual and trying to be fair, because I don't think we need more division in this country, and I think it's important that everybody feels at least heard and understood. So moving on, what does our faith have to say about health care? People who pretend that they could just read the Bible, a collection of books written between 2,000 and 3,000 years ago on the other side of the planet, and they can just read it and apply it today with no interpretation and it's easy. Those people are fooling themselves, but they're probably not fooling anybody else. And so it's not, it's not simple to look at scripture and say, oh, that verse means that we should provide this kind of health care in the 21st century and taxes should be this and the government program should be this and that. I mean, we're not going to pretend 
that it's that simple. But is there anything that we can glean from our faith? Or, is, or perhaps, is our faith so important to us and does it speak to us so profoundly that it has to guide the decisions that we make in some way? So, for example, should all people have access to health care? Is health care a privilege or is it a right? Should health care be available to everybody? That is a question that's up for debate when we talk about eight and a half people or eight and a half percent of our population uninsured. We have to ask, well, do we believe that everybody should have health care? Is everybody entitled? Do they have a right as a human being to have health care? One of the faces of the health care debate 10 years ago when the Affordable Health Care Act was passed was a woman from Medina, Ohio. It's close to where Hannah grew up, actually, named Notoma Canfield. And I have a picture of Notoma here. This is from back uh, about 10 years ago. Notoma was uh, a cancer survivor, and she wrote to the president then because her insurance premium jumped 40% in one year after it had jumped 25% the previous year. And this is back around 2009, and uh, she was afraid that she was going to lose her home. She had beaten cancer, but she required ongoing treatment and medication, and, and her health insurance was becoming unaffordable to her. And she wrote the president asking him to do something about it. And it turns out the president actually read her letter in a meeting with insurance executives to demonstrate the need for more affordable health care. And when the ACA was actually passed, the, administrator, uh, the administration invited her to D.C. But at the time, she was in the Cleveland Clinic getting treatment. She couldn't come to D.C., so her sister went to Washington in her place. And she eventually did get to go later and... That was about 10 years ago, and then this past week, the Channel 5 News in Cleveland interviewed her about her thoughts on health care and her journey 10 years ago and, and how influential that was. And she said, the whole thing concerns me, yes, because the whole thing was not perfect from the beginning. She's talking about the current health care law. The whole thing was not perfect from the beginning, but, but it had a lot of promise, and a lot of it has been torn at. She said, I still have parents come up to me and say, wow, my son, my daughter, they're going to college and they had a pre-existing condition. We never thought they could be covered this long. Even though I didn't do it myself, it's nice to hear that. And then she was eventually able to travel to Washington at the president's invitation to see the letter she wrote him framed and hanging on the wall of the Oval Office. And he actually called her this year and he told her that it's now hanging in his private office. In DC. And so that's one face of the healthcare debate in America. And we're talking about real people. We're talking about us. And we're talking about lots of other people who have, you know, gone through a battle with cancer or some other terrible disease and 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 yet they're trying to figure out how do I how do I stay in my home? How do I not go bankrupt? And so what does our faith tell us? Well there obviously there was no modern medicine in the time of Jesus. Uh, there was no modern medicine before 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And so in the time of Jesus, if somebody had a debilitating illness, a doctor might prescribe, prescribe olive oil, rub some olive oil on the, on the infection or on, on the fracture. And that's about all they could do. Or they, they might believe that, well, you have some bad blood. And so let's bleed you. Let's put leeches on your body. Let's bleed you. And that might get rid of some of your bad blood. There are skulls that have been found by archaeologists that have holes drilled in them. 
And they've pieced that together with some literature, and they figured out that there was a belief practiced in some societies where, well, if, if a person is struggling with mental illness or if they're facing sickness a lot, they're plagued by demons, and let's get the demons out. So they would drill holes in people's skulls to, to let the demons come out. Now, if, if, that's, if that's what your doctor has in mind, you're probably just not going to go to that doctor in the first place. You're just going to skip that option. And where are you going to go? You're going to go to whoever can give you hope, wherever healing can be found. And so shamans and, and faith healers were the normal sources, people who aren't going to drill holes in your skull, were the healthcare options that people in the ancient world went to. And so we see some examples of that in the New Testament, that, that uh, the belief in, in divine healing could be cu- coupled with kind of magical incantations or, or um, healing waters and bathing in, in certain waters. There was, there was a man in the New Testament who was paralyzed, and he laid next to a pool called the, Bool, the Pool of Bethesda. Because the belief was the waters would be stirred, and it was, it was an angel touching the water. And if you could get into those waters first, you could be healed of paralysis. There's a, a story in the New Testament where Jesus actually spits in mud and puts it on a, on a blind man's eyes. And there are Bible scholars who think that was kind of a nod to some of the healing methods of the time, spitting in mud. Jesus is contextualizing that, using a, a, a procedure that was common in that time. So if you read the Gospels and you want to discover who Jesus is, what are, what are some words you might use to describe Jesus? And even if, if a person's not really a, a believer, if they're not really a, a follower of Christ, what are some words they would use to describe Jesus? They'd probably say he's a teacher, right? So he traveled from place to place around the Sea of Galilee and he taught people. All right, so he's a teacher. What's one of the top things you would say about Jesus? What did Jesus do when it came to people who were sick? What did Jesus do? He healed people. One of, one of, maybe the, the number one thing some people would say, oh, Jesus was a healer. Jesus was a faith healer. So just, just a, a cursory reading of the Gospels would show this is a guy who travels around and teaches people. And then what else did he do? He healed people. So in the 21st century, you, you may have questions about miracles and divine healing and faith healers. And of course, we have the people on TV who smack people in the forehead and they fall down. And what, what do we make of all that? Somebody told they went to see Kanye yesterday. And Sun Devil Stadium, you know, Kanye was in town, and, and they went to see Kanye, and there were, you know, there were people there earlier in the day would be like, oh, there's somebody in this section over here, and you're being healed right now. God's, your, your shoulder hurts, and you were born in 1977, and God is healing you right now. And so there's a, there's a whole kind of uh, expression of Christianity that, that practices divine healing. And so there are questions about this, but one of the immediate observations that you would make about Jesus was that Jesus healed people, which would beg the question, why? Well, because it was a need. It was a need that people felt desperately with, with nowhere to turn. And so in the Gospels, the message is that God is at work in the life of Jesus and that there is divine power to heal people and, and Jesus was a healer. So one of those episodes we read about is in Luke chapter 8. You can see it on the screen here. This is a well-known story if you've been around church for a while because it's, it's such a powerful story. Uh, Luke eight forty three through 48 says, As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding 
for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And the story is also in Matthew and Mark. And, and we're told that this woman for 12 years has had this issue where she had bleeding that she could not stop. And she had sought medical treatment. And she had spent all she had. She was bankrupt. She had spent all of her money trying to address this issue. And in our time, we would say something was happening in her reproductive system. But they, there was no modern medicine to treat her effectively. And she had been suffering with this condition for 12 years. She had spent everything she had. Imagine you have hope that the next, thing's gonna, the next doctor promises he could heal you. Or that there's this new treatment coming out. Oh, maybe finally this is my answer. And you spend more. And that doesn't help. And then finally it's all you have. And somebody says, oh, I can help you. And, and you, you give your last dime. And she's not healed. And finally she comes to Jesus and perhaps she touches his, the hem of his prayer shawl. We're not, we're not sure, but, but she's divinely healed. And again, there are people who have questions about miracles and so on. But what, is this, what does this tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about our faith? There are a lot of people who read this story, and it's an ancient story. But they read this and be like, yeah. I can identify with her. In, in the 21st century United States, there are thousands and thousands of people who would read this and say, I, I, I can instantly identify with this woman. I've spent everything I have. I, I, I fill half my prescription because I can only afford to take half of it. And it doesn't really do for me what it's supposed to do because I can't take all of my medicine. And I, I've done this treatment and this treatment. I've spent everything and I, I just, I'm still struggling. I simply cannot afford to be healed. There are lots of people who would identify with her. And so what does our faith say about that? I mean, the fact that Jesus is known as a healer and that we're told to love our neighbors as ourselves and you have episodes like this, I mean, certainly... One of the things we glean from it is God cares about people who are sick. People who are sick matter to God. And they don't go unnoticed. They're not invisible to God. People who struggle with health issues, maybe you're one of them. Maybe you feel like, man, I just, I just, I, there's always this thing that bothers me. It's one thing after another. And you just, you've had to struggle with your health. Well, one of the things we would take from the Gospels instantly is that you matter to God. People who are sick matter to God. The second thing we would take is that apparently God wants to provide healing to them. I don't, I don't think we need to complicate it too much. That There are people who are struggling and one of the primary things Jesus does in his ministry is he heals people. And the message there I think for people of faith is that 
If we're going to follow Jesus Christ, if we're going to follow God, and that's what the spiritual life is all about, it's about being imitators of God, well, then people who are sick are going to be important to us. And we're going to seek to heal them. And so if there's a takeaway for our faith, for people who want to follow Jesus, I don't know that we're left with any other option. I think we can agree on this. You might disagree about how that happens in the United States, but people who are sick will matter to us and we'll seek to provide healing to them. I just, I don't see any other way as far as how our faith speaks to our situation. Once again, that doesn't, you know, you could fall on either side of the two sides we presented, but whatever side you're on, I think if you're a person of faith, you have to have this as a goal. That somehow, whatever system we use, it has to get to this, that health care is available for everybody because people matter to God. And we want, to, we want to provide healing. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., the night before he was assassinated, gave a speech, April 3rd, 1968, in Memphis. And he was organizing, at that time, the Poor People's Campaign. And it was a national effort to uh, combine the voices of people who were feeling economic hardship. And that night, he was speaking on behalf of sanitation workers in Memphis and but that was, his, that was his work all the way up to April 4th, the next day in 1968 when he was assassinated. That was the last work he was doing, was to uh, be a voice for people who were poor. Be a voice for people who couldn't afford the things that, that they need in life, that, that the American dream was not, not applying to them, apparently. And he gave that speech that night on April 3rd, I have seen the promised land. He said, I might not get there with you. But he said, I'm not afraid. And that, that last line that we hear you know, when, that, when that speech is played, he said, mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. And that next, uh, that next day he was shot. But through the eyes of faith, he was motivated by the belief that God cares about everybody especially people who are vulnerable. And that if we want to be good people, you may not even be a person of faith, but if you just want to be a decent human being, well, we want to care for other people the way that we want cared for. And so it means that we would speak up and, and we would believe in, in the rights of the vulnerable. That was his work uh, when his life was taken. You know, a lot of times we honor people like Martin Luther King Jr. on a specific day but we don't honor what they stood for. And so if we honor MLK this year, one of the things that that would demand of us is, well, what did he do? Are we honoring what he did? And what he was doing was he was, he was a voice for people who were vulnerable. And, and, you know, when it comes to faith and politics, most of us have probably just had enough. Of, of people who claim to speak for God, and, they, and that means they tell you how to vote, and, uh, and um, most people are probably just tired of that. And there's something beyond that, though, something maybe underneath that for people of faith. And this isn't on the screen, but this pastor named Andy Stanley, who was a, a pastor of a church in Atlanta, used to be um, a few years ago when I, when I started the church before this, there was a couple who moved here from Atlanta. And they were part of Andy Stanley's church, and they chose to come to our church. 
And there are some differences theologically between me and Andy Stanley, but they, they felt like they were at least at that church, they were being exposed to some kind of thinking about their faith. And Andy Stanley's giving a sermon series right now on, on politics and issues. And, and uh, he posted this quote on Instagram. It's not on the screen, but I want to read it to you. As a person of faith, I just want to read you this quote by Andy Stanley. He says, are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics. Isn't that good? I'm going I'm to read that again. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics? If you're somebody who wants to follow Jesus Christ, what Andy's getting to here is that your allegiance is to Jesus over your political party, over your political views, and really the limited scope of political discussion in the 21st century United States in, in tw- the year 2020. And we live in a very, you know, we have, uh, we have myopia. We only see what's right in front of us a lot of times as we go through life. And Andy's saying, wait a second, our faith is much bigger than that. And are you somebody who wants to follow Jesus? And so... Everything gets filtered through that. Or are you somebody who just kind of creates a version of Christianity that fits in with your cable news station that you watch, or, and that becomes your pastor, your Bible, your church, cable news, or whatever your friends believe, or the, the chain emails they forward you, and, and, you know, making fun of people who disagree, and do you just kind of create a version of faith that supports that? Or are you actually wanting to follow Jesus? And then everything else, all of your others, other views, flow out of that. So regardless of what side you, you fall on, is your allegiance to Jesus. And if you want to follow him and imitate him, uh, do you care about the things he cares about? And apparently that's, man, sick people matter to God. And he wanted to provide healing to them. So as we wrap it up, what's a way forward? Every week I've, I've ended the, the sermon with poll numbers. And of course, polls get criticized now in, in our time too. Um, and people, you know, people believe polls if it says what they want to hear. You know, and otherwise, well, that poll's flawed. And, and are all polls correct all the time? No, no, they're, they're, they're not absolute truth. Are they better than nothing? Oh, yes. And are they generally a good indicator of what people think? If, scientific polls? Yes, yes. They, they normally do get borne out in reality pretty close, pretty close. And so what about this issue? CBS, Gallup, Pew Research ran similar polls last fall. CBS just presented the findings really clearly, so I'm, I'm quoting them here. But they surveyed Americans. What do you think? They said private health care uh, insurance and, and or a public option, or all single-payer public option, what do you think? They conducted a scientific poll, and they found that 66% of Americans favor a government health care plan that covers everyone. 30% oppose that, so two-thirds, a supermajority of Americans, believe that all people should have health insurance coverage. Okay, that was number one. That doesn't mean that Americans only wanted a public option, that they just wanted government-run insurance, because they also found 59% of the people who want the government health care plan 
said it should compete with private insurance, while only 32% wanted a government plan to replace private health insurance. So what, what is the will of the American people, according to, to Pew Research, the Gallup poll, uh, the CBS poll, it's corroborated by several other studies as well that I saw the past couple of weeks. Americans be- believe that everybody should have coverage, and Americans generally support a mix of private and public health care. Americans don't support just private health care, and Americans don't support just a public option, but Americans believe that everybody should be covered and that it should be a mix of a public and private option. That's the, the clear will of the American people. Now, you might agree with that and be like, yeah, but you may not. And if you, if you don't agree with that, first of all, as I always say, I'm okay if you disagree with me. or you dis- I'm, It's not even me, I'm showing you a poll. If you disagree with scientific polling, that's fine, you can. It just means that you want to, you want to argue your case. You, you make a case for what you believe. And then let the American people decide. What we've seen now, this is the third week in this series. What we've seen now, every single week is that the American people actually have clear views on immigration and guns and health care. But those clear views of the American people are not the law in America. And perhaps that's the biggest takeaway of this series. Some of you are starting to see a pattern here. That no, Ryan's not trying to tell me how to vote. Ryan's not trying to pit one side against another. Perhaps what Ryan is saying is the will of the American people is not being accomplished in what's supposed to be a democracy. It's not happening. And we can get caught up in the political games. And right now, of course, the the current president is a controversial figure. And a lot of people are just focused on, well, let's either give him four more years or let's beat him. That's really the, the top issue right now. Just revolves around how do you feel about him. But he's not going to last forever, regardless of whether you like him or not. And there are issues behind him getting elected. And when he's gone, these same issues are still going to be here. And so I think the larger question is, why is it that the clear will of the American people is not getting put into law? And more than that, why is it that we live in a, in a society that is promoting us hating each other and, and ripping each other apart, driving family members apart when there's actually a clear way forward. I think those are important questions to ask as people of faith and as people who are just citizens, regardless of your religion or no religion. Why, why is it that we are being taught to hate each other when there's actually a lot of agreement and what we want isn't getting done in what's supposed to be a democracy. So as people of faith, do we care about people being heard? And, and the majority of Americans actually are common sense people who see a way forward. But then there are all kinds of things obstructing that and hijacking that democratic process to where we can't get what we want. All right, so perhaps that's the most important question for us to consider right now. But as people of faith, what do we do? 
I think that it's important that if we want to follow Jesus, we ask, what did Jesus do? What was important to him? Well, apparently, sick people matter to Jesus, and Jesus wants to see them healed. So regardless of where you fall on the issue, uh, how we do that, well, I think that that's a goal for people who want to follow Jesus. And I'm reminded of a, a lady I met a few years ago. She had a, a serious health crisis right after the ACA was passed, and and her husband lost her job right around that same, or lost his job right around that same time. And she realized, uh, had that law not been passed, she may not have gotten health care. And she got active, and she told her story because she was one of those faces of people who have been, who would have been perhaps left out in the cold, left to die, or left to go bankrupt, seeking treatment. And there are people just like her and like Notoma and maybe some here and maybe people you know who find themselves sick and uninsured in America. And yes, emergency rooms are not going to turn them away, but they're not really getting the health care they need. And so our faith tells us that God cares about people like her and wants to provide healing to her. All right, so we want to follow Jesus and be healers.